0: Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. Uh, this is Eli Ayala, and today uh, I just want to make a quick announcement. If you see my, my eyes kind of glazing over or I, I seem somewhat blind, uh, there are multiple things going on here. Um, I, if, if you noticed, in older interviews, um, I I wore glasses, okay? And so now I have availed myself of the wonderful gift of contact lenses. But... I've had my contacts, my contacts on for the entire day. So now my eyes feel super dry. And if you know anything about YouTube videos and, and how things work, you kind of see me in front of uh, the camera here. Uh, there are these blistering lights shining right in my face. So uh, it, just before I went live, I was kind of looking directly in it. So I'm kind of really blind right now. So I do apologize beforehand uh, if I'm looking off to the side, I don't even know where the camera is. Um, well, at any rate, um, Uh, If you guys are just uh, tuning in, I just want to remind you guys, if you have not already, please subscribe to Revealed Apologetics on YouTube and on iTunes. As I've said in previous episodes, all of the audio that I have uh, from these videos here, the interviews that I've uh, conducted with various theologians and apologists, um, I kind of utilize that audio and put it over onto the the iTunes uh, podcast. Okay. So that is revealed apologetics. All right. Also, if you want to support revealed apologetics, you can do so, um, by sending in a super chat or, um, uh, I'll, you could also email me and uh, I can show you how, uh, you might be able to support, um, in any way, shape or form. I have been increasingly blessed by folks who have found, uh, what, um, I have been doing here, uh, very helpful. And so they've been very generous with their, uh, financial blessing. And so I very much appreciate that. Well, in this uh, video, this video has the potential, this episode has the potential to be somewhat long or very short, okay? Uh, I initially wanted to kind of announce uh, that uh, due to uh, uh, increasing demand, okay, a lot of people have asked me uh, over and over again, uh, Eli, are you um, ever going to write a book? And of course, my response is... uh, No, I I, I just don't have the time, okay? Uh, For those of you who don't know what I do when I'm not uh, on YouTube, I am a full-time teacher. Um, And so as uh, those of you who are in the education field, you know how busy things can get. And of course, I have three wonderful kids uh, who are, um, you know... My eldest is five. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And so uh, things don't get moving along until everyone is sleeping in a way. And and, uh, so um, it can be difficult to find the time. However, uh, because I've been receiving a lot of, um, uh, one second, I have some let me see here. Let me do loading right for me. Uh, there we go. All right. Um, just making sure if there is everything's okay on the technical, and if if anyone has a problem seeing, you know, if there's anything wrong with the visuals or the audios, if you can message me on the uh, the comments, that would be super helpful. Uh, but anyway, um, I have been asked over and over again, uh, you know, why don't you write something? And so I figured um, maybe I can find something to write. Uh, that would be manageable for me and useful for people who find, um, you know, what we are doing here helpful. Um, I was thinking about writing a presuppositional apologetics answer book. And so something small in which uh, each section has an answer to, presuppositional apologetic objections, things that uh, that people who are criticizing the method and just giving these short answers that folks who are online, if you are a presuppositional apologist or you want to learn about presuppositional apologetics, you can kind of uh, thumb through Uh, thumb through uh, some of the sections here and find the relevant question and maybe use it uh, maybe in a chat or uh, when you're witnessing and evangelizing and engaging in apologetics in your own interpersonal relationship. So I figure doing something like that might be more manageable, but um, I want to be able to provide information that is useful to you, the listener. And so uh, I'm asking uh, for help in this regard. Now, every time you ask for help, uh, and you're in ministry. People automatically think you're going to ask for money. Okay, I'm not asking for money. I, I don't. That's not the way in which I'm asking you to help. Although um, I, I wouldn't say no if you were uh, going to to help financially. That's always a blessing as well. But here's what I need with regards to help. If I want to do this presuppositional apologetics answer book, um, and I'm you know trying to mess around messing around with some uh, titles and things like that. Uh, but what I need is for folks who follow my channel and uh, are engaging in uh, apologetics from a presuppositional perspective. um, If you have questions that you often hear from people, or you have questions that you have about the presuppositional method, uh, email me. Okay. If you email me, that would be super duper helpful uh, because uh, uh, you email me these questions. I can actually use that as kind of a, 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 a framework as to which kinds of questions I can focus on. So I do want to cover things like, you know, are presuppositionalists allergic to evidence? Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, how would we answer, say, for example, the the accusation that presuppositionalists confuse ontology with epistemology? It'd be very helpful to have a book with very brief portions where we can just briefly summarize a response there that can provide some uh, usefulness to people who are engaging uh, in others. So kind of just like a, a, um, Uh, kind of an answer book sort of thing. And so if you have any questions and things you'd like me to cover in that book, you could email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. That's revealedapologetics at gmail.com. So um, that's the way that you guys could help me. If you want me to put out a book, um, I'm going to be coming up with questions that I receive uh, from a lot of people. But if you guys can bombard my email, so to speak, with some questions, a list of questions, and that would be super, super helpful uh, for me. I do want to, in the book, cover uh, different levels of difficulty. So I do want this to be something that's useful to the average person. So I'm not intending to write some great apologetic tome, you know, where we answer every single question, uh, you know, imaginable. I mean, it's going to be the precept answer book, and so I want to keep the answers very brief. However, succinct and useful uh, for when you're engaging in apologetics or when you want to learn, you know, a little bit more. Um, you know, have a little bit more succinct answers to some of those pressing questions that often come up uh, within the context of a presuppositional apologetical interaction, okay? So um, I really, really hope that uh, you guys take me up on that offer to email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com with any of the questions you'd like me to cover. Now, if you send me questions, it helps me write the book quicker. Although I will be thinking of questions myself, but I perhaps I will miss something. Some of the questions that people ask me might not be uh, the same questions that you're being asked. And so I want to be a service to you. I want this book to help um, folks um, have an answer from what I think is a biblically consistent apologetic methodology, okay? And of course, if you're a classical apologist or an evidential apologist, and you're hearing what I'm saying here, rolling your eyes oh, grand, the biblical, I do think it's biblical. Matter of fact, one question that I want to cover in this book is, is presuppositional apologetics the biblical uh, apologetic? Okay. Um, I think it's very important. And I've said this in past videos that, um, our apologetic methodology must flow from a consistent theological framework, which finds, uh, its roots in scripture itself. Okay. And when these sorts of things come up, um, there, there's often an intertwining uh, an intermingling of some theological and biblical foundations and some philosophical categories that enter the picture. But However we do apologetics, my encouragement to folks is making sure that they do it in a way that does not compromise their theological and biblical convictions. And so um, I want to address things like that, okay, with various degrees of um, ease or difficulty. I'm going to get into the issues of what is autonomy, what is neutrality. In what way do presuppositionalists think the classical and evidential approaches commit uh, neutrality fallacies and um, appeal to autonomous reason and things like that? So I definitely want to address those issues where the the person who's just being introduced to the methodology finds it useful, but at the same time throw a bone to those folks who have been in the game for a little, uh, you know, for a while and want to address some of the more philosophically relevant questions like that whole ontology and epistemology issue. Okay. Um, So uh, again, I want to also draw from many of the great interviews I've already had. And so I'm going to be listening back on a lot of my old um, interviews and taking notes and hopefully incorporating some quotes from uh, some fine scholars that I've had the pleasure of um, interviewing in the past and including them in the book as well. And who knows, uh, maybe I can get Maybe I can get a scholar or two to to write uh, an answer to one of the the questions. We'll see. Um, But uh, that's what I wanted to uh, let everyone know. Uh, It's kind of a big deal because I've I've never written a book before. And um, I, I don't know how the publishing process goes. So if any of you out there um, really know how that stuff works, uh, email me revealedapologetics revealed apologetics at gmail.com. I'm more than, um, open to listening to what you have to say, uh, because this is my first time doing something like this, but it has always been a dream of mine to write a book. And so hopefully this is something that, um, if I'm putting it out there in the public, uh, it keeps me accountable too. I can keep you updated and every now and then I can share, uh, you know, a section with you guys so that, you know, um, with regards to how the thing, how the project is progressing. All right. Well, um, also I want to address something else. Um, those of you might have noticed uh, that I posted a couple of days ago that I will be interviewing, um, Hank Hanegraaff, who is the, uh, he's over there He's a the president at CRI, the Christian research ministry. Um, and he is the host of the Bible answer man program. Um, and again, um, I have gotten some interesting, um, uh, messages from folks, uh, some, exciting um, responses, but at the same time, some uh, issues of concern. Of course, uh, those of you who are familiar with Hank Hanegraaff and the ministry of of CRI, um, it was quite controversial when Hank Hanegraaff converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. And so I I just want to address that really briefly here. um, So if anyone's watching, they can kind of see from what perspective I'm coming at this interview um, at, because I do definitely want to make sure that people understand where I'm coming from and that there are important dividing line issues theologically that, um, I want to lay out and I will do so also when, uh, when I actually nail down the specific date, uh, for that specific interview. So, um, that being said, um, there is, uh, (laughs) I guess I'm saying, yep, Hank is a bit controversial. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Um, okay. Let's lay out, let's be open here. I'm a reformed Christian. I'm a Calvinist. Okay. Um, there are for me, uh, two categories of doctrine that I think is important for Christians to recognize. Okay. And I think this is very, very important. And I want you to keep this in mind. Uh, whenever I nail down that date and we are talking about this and I still, am going to be speaking with, uh, with Hank at some point this week to kind of talk about the specifics of how the, I want the interview to go. And of course I want to be flexible with him. I'm just super appreciative that um, he was willing to take the time to even, you know, be open to coming on. Cause I, I, from what I hear, uh, Hank doesn't take a lot of interviews, um, but uh, yeah, Nate, if, if you want to send me emails right now, if you guys have questions that you want to send me through email now, uh, you can do that as well, and of course, um, you can send me questions now, if you have a question that you'd like me to address now, after I kind of uh, go through my spiel, um, I'll take a few questions here, and that will dictate how long we go, okay, this can be uh, ending in a couple of minutes, it can be a half hour, if you guys have a bunch of questions, uh, you know, I've had my, um, well, I didn't have my le- my later coffee. I had earlier coffee, but the caffeine is still working. So I, you know, I have not, I'm still able to function without falling asleep. So if you have any questions you want to continue here and, and have a good discussion, I'm open to that. But at any rate, um, Yeah, so uh, I think there are two important uh, issues with regards to Christian doctrine that we really need to keep in mind, and we need to be very careful in keeping these categories uh, distinct, and that is the distinction between what we call essential doctrine and non-essential doctrine. Now, this is always important when we're speaking of the question with regards to, say, Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodoxy or some other, uh, you know, branch or group. Okay, when we ask is a group such as fill in the blank, a Christian group, um, we want to make a distinction between doctrines that are essential and doctrines that are non-essential. Okay, now, what do I mean here? Doctrines that are non-essential are important doctrines, but they are not definitional of the Christian faith in the sense that if you deny them or affirm something, it doesn't um, place you outside the camp of Christ. Okay. And I think that's a very, very important um, uh, concept to keep in mind. Okay. And again, I see the, the questions coming in. That's great. Um, let me just finish up here and then I'll, I'll I'll take a look at those and maybe I could expand on, on some of the things. So thank you so much. Um, I see Michael sending in a question there. Uh, so I'll get to that in just a few moments. Okay. But uh, when we talk about these non-essentials, Uh, These non-essentials can be, uh, they can range from a a whole wide range of issues. As you know, that uh, theology is a very vast uh, topic. Um, But when we talk about non-essentials, I'll give you a kind of a, uh, you know, uh, an example. Speaking in tongues. Okay. You have the the, the whole controversy with the charismatic gifts and things like that. Now, those are very important topics. Um, And so when I say non-essential, I do not intend to convey the picture that these things are just not important. They are. Anything doctrinal. Anything that is uh, something that is revealed in scripture that we need to come to grips with and understand, we need to address those in a very um, serious and sober manner. But we need to be very careful before we start flinging the word heresy. Okay. So keeping that in mind. Okay. So essential doctrine could be something like speaking in tongues. You might be a cessationist. You might believe that speaking in tongues is not something for the church today. Okay, and then, of course, you have uh, charismatic folks and uh, people from the Pentecostal kind of uh, persuasion uh, believe that uh, speaking in tongues is something that is normative for the church. And so uh, that is a very, very important issue. And to have error with regards to that specific issue can have ramifications because very important thing to understand with regards to theology is that everything you believe in theology is in some way, shape or form connected to some other area of doctrine. And so while we might be debating over here some non-essential thing, right? Um, And perhaps you come to a conclusion that is is an error, it can affect other important areas of doctrine. So we don't want to minimize this issue of non-essential, okay? But what about an essential doctrine? I would define essential doctrine as a doctrine, a teaching, a belief within the Christian faith that is definitional to the gospel such that if you were to affirm this specific thing, or deny the specific thing, it would define you in or out of the Christian faith, okay? And um, there are uh, a clear essential doctrine is the deity of Christ, okay? If you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, you're not a Christian. It's just plain and simple, okay? Now, I know there are people who disagree with that, and they have different views of who Jesus is, and they think that they still fit within the realm of of, um, Christian orthodoxy. But in reality, you don't. If you deny that Jesus is God in flesh, that is a heresy of the definitional sort, okay? Very, very important, okay? Now, how do you know the difference between an essential doctrine and a non-essential doctrine, okay? This is so important, all right? (laughs) If if you know what I'm talking about and you're jiving with me, awesome. But if if you're just listening in and you're kind of, well, where is he going with this? This is so important, okay? Because when we speak of the distinction between essential doctrine and non-essential doctrine, then the question inevitably comes, well, how do you know the difference and, and how do you know what's essential and what's not? Well, you have to understand something that scripture itself defines for us essential doctrine now of course the bible is not a systematic theological textbook and so the way it lays it out you're not going to have kind of a list of these are the essential doctrines and these are the non-essential doctrines but typically essential doctrines are found in scripture that is accompanied with qualifiers okay they are doctrines in scripture that are accompanied with qualifiers in other words if you deny this, this results, okay? You know, you have the, the idea of, you know, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, okay? Um, and we can make a very strong argument that the I am sayings actually refers back to Jesus attributing the name of God to himself. And so there, the idea that Jesus is God in flesh is very much wrapped up in the definitional nature of the Christian faith, such that if you deny it, you will die in your sins if you have the wrong Jesus. That's why Mormons, are not christian they have the wrong jesus that's why jehovah's witness are not christian they have the wrong jesus and then you have some people who have quote the right jesus in the sense that their doctrine of christ with regards to his nature being both human and divine is accurate but they have a heretical view of the work of christ that can sometimes impinge upon an essential feature of the doctrine uh, of, of doctrine and one such doctrine i believe would include the doctrine of justification by faith alone okay i believe that justification by faith alone is an essential definitional doctrine now of course uh, there those are people who there are people out there that don't think that's an essential doctrine I think it is. I think biblically we can demonstrate that justification by faith alone is in fact a definitional doctrine of the Christian faith. Okay. So, um, again, when you take a look at Roman Catholicism, for example, Roman Catholicism denies justification by faith alone. And so that is a big problem. Eastern Orthodoxy is a topic that I'm just currently beginning to study. Okay. And I, and I would imagine, I would imagine, uh, after having my, uh, my discussion with, um, uh, with Hank Hanegraaff, uh, this will thrust me into a new project of studying Eastern Orthodoxy. Here's, here's what I find. Every time I ask a question about Eastern Orthodoxy, I get the same answer uh, from a lot of people. Okay. And I've asked scholars and apologists and theologians, um, you know, what does Eastern Orthodoxy believe about A, B, and C? You know, I don't know, you know, and I don't, uh, I don't, don't be fooled by the way, by the books in the background. I've read a little bit of, of all of these. I haven't read them all, um, but in reality, I don't have time uh, to read all these books. I wish, you know, I just purchased a book and uh, I'm hoping to get to it at some point. Um, so there are some things that I like to speak with people about um, so I can learn through the context of conversation, because I don't always have the time to kind of dive in the books, which um, hopefully uh, my schedule will open up for me to be able to do that. But when I speak uh, to folks about Eastern Orthodoxy, I get the same answer. Well, um I'm not sure. (laughs) I've never looked into Eastern Orthodoxy before. That's a good question. I think they believe this. I think they believe that. Um, And and again, uh, that's interesting to me. And so this is something that um, has brought interest to me to study Eastern Orthodoxy and to have conversations with Eastern Orthodox folks. Now, that being said, that by no means, I'm going to say this again, and I'm going to make my mouth very, you know, by no means means that I am compromising my own reformed faith. Okay. I'm a Protestant through and through. I do not need to know the ins and outs of every perspective to know what the Bible teaches with regards to a specific position. I believe clearly that the Bible teaches justification by faith alone, even though I may not be able to explain to you, for example, the Orthodox position with regards to justification by faith alone. And hopefully I can get there when I take some time to study these, these issues. Okay. But again, uh, a lot of people don't know about Eastern Orthodoxy. And so hopefully within my discussion with Hank, I, I want to talk about a few things, but I also want to talk a little bit about his position there. And so I wanted to lay out, uh, in the open, uh, that this in no way is me suggesting that the differences between Protestant Christianity, evangelical Christianity, and Orthodox Christianity is not important. Those are important differences. Um, But I think there needs to be opportunity to have discussion, uh, to be educated with regards to what other people believe and doing that within the context of a respectful um, interaction. Right. Because I have no intention to uh, debate Hank. I don't want to debate Hank. (laughs) You know, he's the Bible answer, man. I'm just kidding. Um, I don't want to debate him. I want to learn. And that is not the same as saying I agree with him. I know before we start, I disagree. But I want to be able to understand and I hopefully we can do that within the context of a respectful and um, just an open discussion. OK, so I just wanted to give a heads up for folks because I know I've received a lot of uh, messages from people um, about interviewing uh, Hank Hanegraaff uh, from CRI. So I um, mean, I've reached out to a lot of uh, theologians and apologists that I trust uh, to kind of act, act, ask for counsel with regards to whether I should do uh, an interview like this and. Um, Uh, and I've gotten some really good and thoughtful, uh, responses there. And so, um, unless anything changes from now until, you know, the interview, I, I, I'm, we're going to do it and I'm looking forward to it. Um, but of course I will definitely want to uh, follow up that interview with, um, some comments and my thoughts after the discussion. So I think it's going to be very, uh, very good. Um, and also I'd like to ask Hank about some other stuff that I think might be helpful for people as well. So, uh, so that's kind of what's going on. Want to write a book. Having an interview coming up Uh, with regards to the book, I appreciate your help, you know, send me your questions through email uh, and hopefully I can have some kind of a context to take the time to address uh, the questions that you guys are asking and perhaps scratch where you guys are itching uh, as the weird saying goes, okay? So uh, with that said, uh, let's take a look. Uh, I do have a lot of comments and questions here. So let me sift through them there. Back to Genesis says, do it, do it. Sign me a copy when you're done. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I, I have to be honest. I am super excited at the prospect of writing a book. I've always wanted to do it, um, but it, it can be difficult. So um, I'm looking forward to doing uh, to doing this and and offering something that perhaps will be helpful to you guys. So uh, so thank you for the support there. Um, let's see here. Okay, moving through some of the comments. A lot of hellos. Let's see here. And where are you first? Exp- oh, here we go. Okay. Uh, so here's a question by uh, Mawson Hollowell. I hope I said that right. Mawson Hollowell. Mawson is like, Bonson with no N, so Bosson. That's why I was able to pronounce it. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correct. Okay. Hollowell, uh, when were you first exposed to the presup methodology? Well, as the legend goes, right, um, I was exposed to presuppositional apologetics in the same way that most people who were not alive during the life of Van Til and Greg Bonson, Um, Well, well, I was alive uh, when they were alive, but I was too little. Okay, but most people come through um, they're exposed to presuppositional methodology through uh, Greg Bonson and his famous debate with Gordon Stein. That's really where I first heard of this methodology. And I was really amazed um, that I had I had exposed myself to many other debates within an apologetic context. I listened to a lot of William Lane Craig. Um, I listened to a J.P. Moreland debate. I was very into the classical approach, and I, and I still am. As a presuppositionalist, I very much appreciate um, some fine defenders of the traditional arguments. And as you know, um, presuppositional apologetic methodology does not necessarily mean that one finds the traditional proofs, the theistic proofs, you know, uh, useless, OK, even Vantil himself said that um, uh, he agreed with the traditional proofs, but he didn't like how when it was often presented, there were these uh, things, these, these issues of autonomy and neutrality snuck into the whole process. See, So um, there are presuppositionalists uh, that don't like the theistic proofs but they're not liking the theistic proofs is not an essential feature to presuppositionalism, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, So I was first exposed to, to presuppositional methodology through that debate between uh, Gordon Stein and Greg Bonson. And of course that opened up a whole new world of apologetic methodology because I was able to see someone who was a, a fine debater and B was thoroughly biblical. And that was what drew me. Okay. I don't want to stand from a pious high horse, But it is attractive to me apologetically and theologically when someone defends the faith uh, without minimizing the role and significance of the Bible and the Christian worldview. Okay. That's why when I hear a classicalist focus so much on theistic proofs and never get to scripture, I know there's usefulness in approaching things in that way, but there's just something about it. I ask myself, would the apostles argue this way? If, if, you know, if they had this vast array of information that kind of later developed after, you know, the apostles established church and you have this refinement of the, the of theology and philosophy and things like that, would they have argued that way? And I don't know, man, I I'm, As a presuppositionalist, I feel that the presuppositional method captures the essence of defending the faith without compromising one's conviction and not giving over too much to the opponent such that in doing so, we're acting inconsistently with our biblical principles. Okay. Now, if you're a classical apologist and you don't think you do that and you don't do that and you try to be conscious of that... Great. I mean, that's that's awesome, and I think I think for, for the presuppositionalists and the classicalists at that point, even in their disagreements, can have a fruitful relationship because we are maybe disagreeing with methodology, but we're sharpening and refining each other. Right. I just spoke with um, you know, uh, an apologist friend of mine. Uh, maybe you guys have heard of him. His name is Eric Hernandez. Um, and he is a, a, an, an apologist, a classical apologist. And he's even debated uh, another friend of mine, Cy 10 Cape over apologetic methodology. And we, we talk all the time and uh, he, he says, well, you know, what, what's this deal with neutrality and autonomy? I, I or, you know, I never engage the unbeliever thinking that we're neutral. Okay. And when he told me that I was like, well, that sounds very presuppositional of you. Great. You know, and if you could approach apologetics in that regard where you are, epistemologically self-conscious of your own foundations and you argue in ways and use various arguments in ways that are consistent with those foundations, then, then all the power to you, right? Even someone at like Saiten Bruggenkate says, if you can give evidence in a way that doesn't compromise your Christian convictions of avoiding neutrality and autonomy, go nuts you know? Um, so, um, you know, there are classicalists that are very presuppositional ish uh, even though they are under the label of, of classicalist okay so i hope that answered the question i kind of went off to the side there but uh hopefully um (laughs) hopefully that was helpful all right uh revealed apologetics you know reformed people do not write books they write tomes yes that's true but but you know i was not raised in the reformed tradition i was raised in a pentecostal tradition and i am one of those people who are raised in the microwave mentality right i want put it in the microwave, just a couple of seconds and I'm done. All right. I don't have time to write tomes. I wish I, I wish I did, but uh, uh, I unfortunately uh, w- w- would not be able to write a tome anytime soon. However, writing a pre-sub answer book is super exciting because I love presuppositional apologetics. You guys know this. This is why I have the certain guests that I have, right? This is why I had Michael Kruger to talk about, uh, Dr. Michael Kruger from Reformed Theological Seminary to talk about presuppositional methodology applied to canonical studies. I love apologetics because I see its, its vast application into areas that we just need to tap into more so that we can have a more robust and fully or apologetic presentation that is powerful, is not compromising in its approach. And, um, we get to see the different ways in which we can, we can use it. And so if you got, by the way, I was looking on my channel, I was scrolling through some of the videos and I saw just a couple of hundred views, uh, of, with my discussion with Dr. Michael Kruger. And I'm like, how is this possible? That was one of the best interviews that I had. Okay. There are a bunch of them that were super good. That one was particularly good. My interview with Dr. Michael Kruger after that interview, someone personally emailed me who was a classical apologist who after watching that discussion said i am now a presuppositionalist my biggest fear as a classicalist examining presuppositionalism was that if i were to become a presuppositionalist i wouldn't be able to appeal to evidence you see there was that mentality that presuppositionalist you can't use evidence and so i'm going to stay on the classical end because we could appeal to evidence and these sorts of arguments When he listened to that discussion, he converted, so to speak, his apologetic methodology. Now, again, that was very encouraging to me because it was able, it was an example of someone seeing, uh, the mystifying, mysterious nature of the presuppositional approach as we see it in the inter on the internet, right? It's kind of like, what are they talking about? That's crazy. But when you get to some of these deeper issues, you're able to speak about these issues with clarity there's more to it than just the by what standard, uh, refrain, right? There's so much more, uh, so much more to it. So again, if you haven't, uh, taken a look at, at uh, my interview with Dr. Michael Kruger, um, it was an excellent, um, discussion. I, I highly recommend that. Um, and of course, I, I I can, I can dedicate an entire episode just uh, talking about all of the excellent discussions uh, that, that we had. But the purpose of having the certain guests that I've had was to address some area of presuppositional apologetical application that I think is underdeveloped within the popular realm. Okay. And so that's why we talked about a lot of the things that we talked about in past interviews. All right. All right. All right. Moving along. All right. I see a couple of students, you know, my students checking out with, uh, checking <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I think I I, I would, l- I'll say hi. I don't know if I could interact with you. That'd be weird, i right? You're my students. I don't know if I could do that. Okay, there we go. Question. Uh, let's see here. I hope I can answer it. Uh, is there a way to reconcile the Vantillian approach with the Thomistic approach? Vantillian in a way uh, that we don't let the unbeliever borrow from our worldview and put the lordship? What? Wow, that is a very interesting question. Let's see here. Of Christ, Thomistic in a way we engage in deep philosophical concepts and arguments like the Kalam Cosmological Argument, Ontological Argument, etc. All right. Uh, is there a way to reconcile Vantilian approach with a Thomistic approach? Uh, I don't think so. Um, it depends what you mean by Thomistic approach. There are aspects of Thomism that a presuppositionalist may not have a problem with. And there are aspects of Thomism which a presuppositionalist would have a problem with. So, for example, if you with regards to the knowledge of God that all men have, um, if you deny, for instance, that man has an immediate knowledge of God and that the knowledge of God is mediate. That is to say that the knowledge of God is mediated through the created order. And so I have to acquire knowledge of God from out based upon what he's made and then come to the conclusion that he exists. If you are saying that knowledge of God is only that to the exclusion of the fact that there is a knowledge of God that is immediately known by the very fact of our own human constitution made in the image of God. If you deny innate knowledge of God, uh, then I think there would be an inconsistency there. Okay. But again, these philosophical distinctions are, are very deep and wide. And, um, I am not a Thomistic scholar, so I don't know what the Thomist is allowed to believe and still be a Thomist, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, but I think the innate knowledge issue I think is, is, um, very important. Of course, um, a Vantilian approach, because I think it's the correct apologetic methodology, and because I think it's biblical, I do think that it is based upon principles in Scripture. Whereas when you take a look at something like Thomism, it's very heavily reliant upon Aristotelian thought categories, which I don't think is something reflective of the biblical principles that I mentioned before. Okay, so uh, hopefully that makes sense. Um, uh, I'm not an expert in that specific uh, field, but those are my thoughts. There, I think that's a great question. Okay. Here's another question from karaoke and vlog with max. Okay. What do you think about the LGBTQ plus I like the plus because there's so many letters. I lost track of the letters. My goodness. What do you think about the LGBTQ plus and how to help them learn about God when they go to church? Okay. So somebody see if I can understand the question, what do I think about uh, the LGBTQ community and how to help them learn about God when they go to church? Well, well, when anyone who is a lesbian, uh, a get you know a homosexual, whether they're male, female, bisexual, transsexual, whatever the case may be, all of these folks, I think is very important, must be welcomed in the church just as anyone else is welcomed in the church. But when they are welcomed in the church, just like anyone else, you better be preaching a biblical, uncompromising gospel. Okay, and so. When we want to help folks understand and learn about God, we need to be able to do that without giving so much regard of people's responses. Because a lot of things that the Bible contains, the truth in God's word, it can be offensive to um, the natural man's sensibilities, okay? Um, Even going through the the biblical view of homosexuality with a homosexual, it can be very difficult for them to grasp, and they're easily offended. OK, and but at the same time, when we are welcoming people within the church, um, we are not preaching so that people feel comfortable necessarily. We want to be loving and, and open in that sense, but we don't want to compromise the gospel. OK, so how do we help folks learn about God when they go to church the same way we help anyone learn about God? Preach from the scriptures faithfully and uncompromisingly. Very, very important. And also. This is very important when we're dealing with the LGBTQ community, um, and anyone for that matter, we have to understand it's very easy to jump out and focus on those specific issues because they, they loom very large, uh, in the society today. But when we are proclaiming the truth of the gospel uncompromisingly, it is possible that we do so in a way that is not glorifying to God. Namely, we are proclaiming truth, not in the manner Uh, that the source of our truth tells us to remember first Peter chapter three, verse 15, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you yet doing so with gentleness and respect. We need to learn to be able to point out truth in God's word, proclaim it faithfully with gentleness and respect. Even if that means people are going to walk away. Okay. Does that make sense? So, so how can we help the LGBTQ community help them learn about God the same way we would help anyone learn about God. Just, speak honestly what the Bible says, speak it in love, speak the truth in love, but speaking in love does not mean compromising. And so there has to be that very careful balance when we are sharing the faith with, uh, with anybody, much less anyone from the LGBTQ community. Okay. So, uh, it's just the simplicity of speaking the truth uncompromisingly, but doing so with love. Okay. And with the context of uh, relationship, right. And I understand that there are people, you know, they'll say, well, you know, well, Jesus knocked over the tables and he came out strong sometimes he called the people a brood of vipers i, I get, there is a time and place to be much more stronger in our words but i think a lot of people um in their over their their over zeal often go for the strong um the strong words first without actually having a level headed conversation with someone seeing where they're at and really just speaking to their situation and being able to do that and navigate those sorts of conversations with Gentleness and love, but without compromise, right? Um, So, I think that's important. I hope that's helpful. Um, you Give me a thumbs up if if that was helpful. I hope it was. So, <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, right. Let's see here. Uh, Let's see. Okay. Oh, there's someone said, as someone new to presup, I have lots of questions, so I'll send them to you. Thank you. Perfect. That's good. See, those are the people. I, I I'm I'm looking for the people that say I have a hundred questions on presuppositional apologetics. I'll email you tonight. You know, those are the kinds of people I want. So I want to hear your questions, right? That, that'll be super helpful to me. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see here. I'm not sure if this is a question. I kind of just clicked on it. One thing I'd love to uh, love is how to more effectively explain to the unbeliever why you have to do an internal critique once they understand that many of their objections fall flat. Um, yes, I think that's true. Um, I think this was brought out very clearly in my debate with Eric Murphy. If you haven't uh, seen my debate with Eric Murphy, uh, he is an atheist. Um, He was um, involved with a podcast that was kind of a sister podcast to the atheist experience, which is a podcast there that most people know, um, which is associated with Matt Tillahunty, which is a a very um, well-known atheist. Um, I had an excellent discussion with um, Eric Murphy in which at a particular point in the debate, I explained to him the importance of internal critique anytime you try to critique my worldview, okay, from an external perspective, everything you say is irrelevant, right? Because basically by externally critiquing me, you're just faulting my view for not being your view, <laughs> okay? Of course you're going to throw those objectives because you don't hold to my perspective, okay? That's why people get annoyed at the fact that presuppositionalists often talk a lot about worldviews. You know, when I do a debate, you can see um, uh, debates. I, I had a debate with a, a gentleman by the name of negation of P very nice discussion on modern day debates. Uh, if you guys are familiar with that YouTube channel and we had a great discussion, but if you look at my debate uh, on modern day debates with negation of P, if you look at my debate with Eric Murphy, uh, which is entitled a respectful dialogue with an atheist. And if you look at my debate on the gospel truth with uh surus, the skeptic, You will see that my opening statements are very much the same, uh, very similar. And that is, I seek to lay out the worldview issue. I think it's very important when we're doing apologetics to set the table, so to speak. You need to clearly define the Christian worldview. You need to clearly define what is the opposition and then clearly define the parameters of the discussion so that in order to adequately respond to the presuppositional argument, The only way that it can possibly be done is through internal critique. And then we welcome the unbeliever to do that internal critique. Okay. And from there, then we provide the apologetic response. In my discussion with Eric Murphy, once he got it, there was kind of a moment where it clicked. He says, okay, internal critique. So let me see if I can point out a contradiction within your worldview. And that's a form of internal critique. And I said, there you go. You're you're on the right track. And at that moment, he tried to show that there was a logical inconsistency with the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. now, of course, he uh, flubs on the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. And I say this respectfully. Um, I told him, even if I wasn't a Christian, I would not agree with your understanding of of the Trinity. I'm not just saying this because now I'm doing apologetics with you and you're trying to attack my position. You just don't understand what the Trinity is. And so the good thing is knowing your own theology allows you to survive the internal critique of the unbeliever. Because once that, once the unbeliever recognizes the importance and, and necessity of engaging in the internal critique, then that requires you, okay, to do more than say by what standard. It requires you to actually know the ins and outs of your own position so that when the internal critique is attempted, you are able to point out where the errors are. And that's part of the defense. You're, you're deflecting these objections that are, are attempted internal critiques of your worldview perspective. That's very, very important. So I think it's important uh, to point that out. How do you more effectively explain to the unbeliever? Well, in my experience, it's, it's just laying out the nature of the discussion, laying out your worldview. Laying out that we all have ultimate foundations. Laying out that we all take our foundations for granted and that we don't appeal to something more foundational than they in order to justify them. And once you set that groundwork and the unbeliever kind of jives with you and says, okay, I have an ultimate foundation too and I kind of take it on its own authority. Now you're have now you functioning on, on all cylinders and, and hopefully both of you within the context of a respectful dialogue. You're on the same page. And then you begin to say, well, if it's an internal critique, well, let me assume the truth of your perspective and see where it leads. And we assume the truth of the unbeliever's perspective to show internally where it leads. Okay. But here's a word of advice. Okay. This is very important. This is super important. I just watched the debate. I won't mention the names of the people, but it was an atheist and a Christian and the, uh, well, I mean, I, am not sure if this person's a Christian because uh, he holds to some theological beliefs that, um, that I might take issue with, but he used a presuppositional method, but he had an attitude, kept interrupting the guy. Okay, And the other guy got defensive. And so there was just this back and forth of bickering. It was like two teenagers just arguing and getting nowhere. Now, I agreed with the form of argumentation that the presuppositionalist was using. But his attitude and rudeness prevented him from making his points clear so as to make the opponent get on the same page, understand where you're coming from, and meaningfully interact. That's why it's so important. Presuppositional apologetic methodology is a powerful apologetic method, but it must be tethered with a, um, a gentleness and respect when it is presented. Once you lose the respect of the other person, there's no communication. Okay, That's why Calvinists, presuppositionalists online get a bad rap. Because although I believe the Calvinist has the correct doctrine, and although I believe the presuppositionalist has the right methodology, they often express those things and they come off as jerks, right? It's just, you know, uh, they don't know how to communicate in a way where you have a meaningful conversation. It's always, I need to find a way to get the other person. And that just doesn't cater to open uh, discussion, okay? So again, especially when you're debating online, you want people to learn. It's not just you trying to refute the other person, you're, you're, um, teaching those who are listening. And so you want to be able to engage in the method in a way that is meaningful with your, with your opponent, but at the same time, instructive for those who are listening and who knows, there might be someone who's on the fence and grappling with these issues and, uh, you know, needs to hear a clear presentation of the Christian position. All right. All right. Let's move on here uh praise jesus says hank is a bit controversial yes just a little bit right (laughs) he is controversial yeah okay let's see here uh we have a comment here uh each apologetics approach is biblical precept principles are most central three biggest categories classical is focused on metaphysics Evidential, are focused on epistemology. Precept is focused on ethics. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I would agree with that. Um, I, I, get, I guess I see what you're trying to say. Um, if a presuppositional apologetics is the biblical position, then it would follow that the evidential methodology is not necessarily following biblical principles. There might be elements of it, but um, it's not, consistent with what I think are the principles of scripture with regards to how we should engage. Now, that being said, I love my evidentialist brothers, and I learn from my evidentialist brothers. That's why I purposely have apologists who don't share my methodology on the show. I've had Dr. Gary Habermas on, who is an evidentialist, right? And I learned from him. Uh, By the way, I learned an interesting story that he actually knew. uh, He had an acquaintance with Greg Bonson, and he presented his minimal facts to Greg Bonson. Uh, So that was kind of fun. But I learned from an evidentialist. I've had Frank Turek on. I've learned from classicalists, okay? But I wouldn't say that each approach is equally biblical um, because we need to be careful. I think I had uh, uh, Dr. Hugh Ross on from Reasons to Believe. And um, I had him on twice. I had him uh, interact with Jason Lyle on the um, the Young Earth, Old Earth uh, controversy. And then I had him to kind of explain, I had him back to explain a little more in detail his own position. And he said something that I didn't agree with, um, with regards to apologetic methodology, he said that sometimes I use presuppositional apologetics and he explains the context in which he uses that. And then at other times he will use an evidential approach. And there's this, almost this assumption that you can dip in and out of these apologetic methodologies. And that's, I don't think that's possible. Um, we need to be very careful not to confuse the notion that because we appeal to presuppositions with our discussions, with our apologetic interaction, that we are therefore engaging in presuppositionalism. That's not the case. And when a presuppositionalist is utilizing evidences, that does not mean he's utilizing evidentialism as a methodology. There's a difference there. So you don't jump in between methods just because you're focusing on a presupposition here, focusing on an evident or argument here. Okay, There are different methodologies and they're not something that you could necessarily mix and match. Okay. That's my perspective on it. There may be people who disagree, but, um, I disagree with them <laughs> on that topic. So I hope that makes sense. All right. Thank you so much for that. Um, let's see here. Uh, Melissa says, looking forward to your book. So am I, hopefully I can get it done. Uh, really hoping that, uh, you know, uh, things work out and I'm able to get it out, um, sooner rather than later. Uh, Michael Miano says, what is the source for essential doctrines? That's a very, Good question. Well, all of this, this, the main source of essential doctrine is the scriptures themselves. Okay. All right. Um, so it's the scripture that defines doctrine and it is the scriptures that differentiates that which is essential and that which is adiaphora, right? Those that are, you know, they're up for debate and it's okay that Christians disagree on those areas and we can lovingly within the community of faith to uh, talk about them. But I believe that the source of essential doctrine is the scriptures itself. As I mentioned in the beginning, uh, again, though, the Bible is not a systematic theology. So you need to kind of grapple with the text and see, this is what it's teaching here, the qualifiers and, and things like that. Now, essential doctrine comes from scripture. However, the philosophical and theological language that we utilize to speak about these things are not necessarily taken from scripture. OK, um, so, uh, uh, for example, you know, the communicatio idiomatum or the hypostatic union, definitely concepts that are taught in Scripture. But of course, the Scripture is not necessarily using that theological language. I would think that some of the more refined theological and philosophical language that we use when talking about theological concepts derived throughout history, often within the context of responding to heresy and there being a need for us to be more specific with regards to what we're saying as it relates to a particular doctrine. Okay. So I want to keep that in mind as well. Uh, Patrick asks, is justification by faith alone and essential? Yes, I believe it is. I believe it is. And again, um, time escapes me to kind of go through the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone in detail right now, but perhaps that would be a topic for another video that is, I think, a very important uh, doctrine, a very definitional doctrine of the Christian faith in my estimation. Okay. All right. Uh, Good questions here. Uh, Tom asks the question, is presuppositional apologetics a tool in the toolbox? For example, when addressing someone who objects to the resurrection, can we use precept and evidence evidences? Uh, okay, now there is a, um, a confuddling of categories in the question, okay, Tom? Uh, it's a great question, and this is often something that comes up because of that dichotomizing in our mind, that presuppositionalists deal with presuppositions, evidentialists use evidence, and is sometimes the presuppositionalist can kind of creep over to the evidential side and talk about evidence, and sometimes the evidentialist can creep over to the presuppositional side and use presuppositionalism, okay? When you say for example, when addressing someone who objects to the resurrection, can we use presup and evidences? Yes, you don't use presuppositionalism with evidentialism, but you can use presuppositionalism with evidences because there is a difference between evidences and evidentialism. I'm going to say that again, very important. There is a difference between evidences and evidentialism. Okay, the presuppositionalist is allowed to appeal to evidence. In the words of Dr. Scott Oliphant of Westminster Theological Seminary and a Ventillian presuppositionalist, I might add, okay. He says that as presuppositionalists, we are eminently evidentialist in that we believe that literally everything is evidence for God. But of course, if everything is evidence for God, then I could appeal to anything as evidence for God. And I do so in a way that is consistent with my presuppositional convictions. OK, as long as we're using evidences within a presuppositional framework and we're using it in a way that is consistent with that framework, then I think we can appeal to evidences. We can appeal to specific things, um, aesthetics, beauty, morality, science. Right. This is um, typified in uh, two very important debates that I think uh, standard presuppositional debates, both of them, Greg Bonson debates. If you notice the Greg Bonson debate with Gordon Stein, uh, Greg Bonson focused on logic with the utilization of his transcendental argument. Right. Um, and then when you look at Dr. Bonson's debate with um, Edward Tabash, he didn't so much focus on um, logic. He focused on induction and science and scientific uh, scientific thought. Right. So he was arguing that the Christian worldview provides the necessary preconditions for induction. And so to do science in any consistent fashion, you need to be operating within a Christian framework. But you see in both those debates, he focused on two things, showing that we don't always have to use the transcendental argument and appeal to logic. We can also apply transcendental categories to literally anything, since we believe that the Christian worldview framework gives meaning to everything, right? So I would say that the presuppositionalist is um, is more evidential in many cases than many evidentialists, because I don't just think that miracles are evidence for God. I also think mundane things are evidence for God. I, I think that... The fact that toothpaste always comes out of the toothpaste tube when we squeeze it is evidence for God. And if you're interested in why I said that, Greg Bonson was uh, famous for um, his argument for God's existence called the toothpaste proof, uh, the toothpaste proof for God's existence. And of course, that was just kind of a fun way that he would show that even when squeezing toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube, we have to appeal to concepts of induction and things like that of which he argued that the Christian worldview is the only perspective that provides the foundation for something like that. Okay. So, uh, I hope that makes sense. I hope that, uh, uh, helps and answers your question. All right. All right. Let's move on. Did I skip? I think I skipped. Let me see. All right. These, uh, let's see. These are great questions. I hope if you guys can give me maybe a thumbs up or a happy face or something, if you're finding this stuff helpful, um, that definitely, uh, would uh, let me know that I could keep on going if if you're enjoying and finding this helpful. So uh, let's see here, we're gonna click that here. Okay, good. We're enjoying, keep going. All right, I'll keep going for a little bit. Let's see here. Uh, Nate says, I've never really understood uh, why someone like a Muslim cannot use precept for their Unitarian God. Excuse me, versus the Christian for the Trinity. Maybe you could answer holistically and specifically. Okay, this is a great question. And this is often a criticism. I want to include this in the book. I want to provide kind of a thought-out answer to this question. Can other religions utilize a transcendental argument, right? Um, Because the assertion that the Muslim can use the presuppositional approach completely misunderstands the nature of the presuppositional argument, okay? We want the Muslim to argue presuppositionally. I want the atheist to argue presuppositionally. I want the Mormon to argue presuppositionally. I want the fill in the blank to argue presuppositionally. Why? That's the whole purpose of me setting up at the beginning, setting the table of speaking about worldviews. I have a worldview. I have a system. I have an authority. You have a worldview. You have a system. You have an authority. And now you have the battle of the systems. And we ask which system provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience or knowledge or whatever you're, you're arguing at that point, okay? And we want them to argue in a presuppositionally consistent way so that when we engage in the internal critiques, we are able to effectively make our point that given the truth of their perspective, it doesn't work. And that given the truth of our perspective, it does, and here's why, you see? So they can use it, but they don't have the capital to actually ground the specific things that we're trying to ground, namely the, the providing the preconditions for intelligible experience. Now, again, now I could say that, of course, that's going to actually have to be worked out within the discussion. You know, it's like me saying to the atheist, the Christian God provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. And then the atheist goes, okay, well, my atheistic perspective provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience, you know, come at me, bro. And so the assumption is that these claims are just reversible. But they're not because the argument doesn't end with just the statement of my worldview provides the preconditions of intelligible experience. You now have to show that your worldview perspective provides the capital, can in essence pay the rent on that claim, you see, right? And so if you were to say on atheism, I can provide the preconditions for logic, well, okay, now on atheism, on on purely naturalistic assumptions, give me the foundations of of immaterial immutable laws. You see, you see the problem? So saying it doesn't mean you can do it, okay? But saying it at least brings the challenge forth and then you're engaging in that internal critique. Okay. A lot of unbelievers think that this is just kind of a, a tricky move. You know, Presuppositionalists are just sneaky, sly people. And unfortunately, there are people who just use these form of arguments to avoid answering tough questions. But in reality, um, it's not a word game. It's not a tactic to avoid answering things. It really is just getting down to the foundations of our perspective and asking which framework makes sense out of this. Right. Um, and a lot of people don't think in those categories because they think very much, um, in neutral and autonomous categories. We need to independently and unbiasedly look at the evidence and follow where it leads, not understanding that we actually interpret the evidence in light of, in light of our broader presuppositions, okay? So that's why we talk about these issues the way that we do, okay? So a Muslim can uh, can use it. I welcome, I welcome him. Um, but I'll tell you one thing, a Unitarian God will not be able to provide the necessary preconditions for the one and the many, which is another topic, which I want to spend some time doing a video on as well as include in my uh, book the pre answer book we'll talk a little bit about what's the big deal with the one and the many problem okay all right that is a great question all right uh nico fannin nico fannin i hope i said that right uh could you go over why atheists can't account for uniformity of nature and how we explain that to unbelievers very good okay well what is the uniformity of nature okay the uniformity of nature is the notion that nature is Uniform, right? It works in accordance with uh, what seems to be certain laws, okay? Now, the problem with having a worldview that is not grounded in the revelation of an omniscient God, you can never know with any degree of certainty that tomorrow must be like the past, you see? So if I were to drop my mouse here, I let it go, what happens? Well, everyone says it falls to the ground. And if I pick it up again and I let it go, it falls to the ground. And if I pick it up a million times and let it go a million times, we conclude based on the regularity of our past experience that it will always fall. But the fact that it has always fallen in the past does not mean that it must fall in the future, unless you assume that it must fall in the future because nature must act in this uniform fashion. But on an atheistic perspective in which things are random, you could never know that. Now, atheists will say, well, we don't believe in complete randomness because we know that certain items in the, in the universe have specific nature about them, that they act in certain ways when they interact with other things. And, but listen, that all assumes the uniformity of nature on a worldview that has no revelation from an omniscient God. How do you know that rocks must act a certain way just because you've observed that it act that way in the past, you see, at least it makes sense within a Christian perspective in which an all knowing God who created all things and created the laws that govern our, our world, has revealed to us that nature works and functions in such a fashion. You see, this is why modern science was developed in the Christian West, because it was developed within the the context of a worldview where something like the uniformity of nature makes sense, you see? So the uniformity of nature is a very, very important concept to science, and basically, um, you know, showing how the Christian worldview grounds something or justifies something like this um, is important because it shows that the Christian worldview provides a foundation for science. Okay. whereas the atheistic worldview doesn't. Now, there are atheists who are brilliant scientists, but that's not the issue. The issue is, do they have a worldview framework that actually makes sense out of the brilliant science they're doing? That's an important question that we need to ask. Okay. now, how do you explain that to an unbeliever? Well, first, you're going to have to understand what the uniformity of nature is. You're going to have to understand it as a philosophical problem. It's not just something that presuppositionalists bring up. The problem of the uniformity of nature and the problem of induction, as uh, it's also called, um, has been brought up by unbelieving scholars. Bertrand Russell spoke about this. David Hume spoke about this. This is not an issue particular to um, presuppositionalists. We only bring it up because it is very important. And a lot of people try to poo-poo it because they don't like to think about justifying those things. They just want to do the science and kind of keep the presuppositions that are necessary to do that without having to account for them. But the presuppositionalist is going to want to ask the person to account for the things that they do. Just as Van Til said, many believers can count and often they can count better than Christians. The issue is not that unbelievers can't count. The issue is that unbelievers cannot account for their counting. And so it's at that presuppositional fundamental level that we need to press the unbeliever. Okay. Hope that makes sense. All right, let's continue on. Uh, there's a lot of highs. Greetings from the Philippines. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for watching. Uh, let's see here. Uh, slam R-N. Is that, am I saying that right? Is it just slam R-N? Should I be saying it in some cool you know, way? I, I apologize. All right. Uh, I used to be reformed for a long time. I loved, I loved Greg Bonson, Van Til, and Plantiga. I still like their high view of scripture. I even watched James White every dividing. <laughs> no, okay. Well, notice here, look at this. You read this here. I used to be reformed for a long time. I loved, past tense, <laughs> Greg Monson, Fantil, and Plantiga. I hope you still love them. I hope you can still appreciate them, even though you might uh, differ uh, with them on the reform position. I still like their high view of scripture. Cool, me too. Uh, and look at this, his deep, dark, dirty secret. Okay. I even watched James White. <laughs> okay. Well, I, all joking aside, Yes, I find uh, James White very, very helpful, Um, although I, you know, uh, James White is another controversial guy, and some people think he's rough around the edges, but uh, me personally, he has helped me uh, tremendously in understanding the Reformed faith, uh, church history, and various other apologetic issues, so I do find the work of Dr. White uh, immensely uh, useful, and of course, I know, uh, you know, not everyone agrees, but uh, I definitely think he is an excellent uh, Christian apologist, all right? Uh, here's greetings from uh, Andy. Uh, greetings. Look forward to the signed copy of the book. Well, you're a good friend of mine. So if I ever get to finish this book, uh, you definitely will. So uh, thanks for watching, Andy. Uh, we got to connect soon, man. All right. Miss you. All right. Let's move on here. Let's see here. I'm trying to. Let's see. <laughs> okay. Here is a question. Uh, from Mark Jackson, how do you use precept apologetics to an atheist when they don't believe in the Christian worldview? Well, I, I will think about that. Of course, the atheist doesn't believe in the Christian worldview, right? So we would use a presuppositional, we we use the presuppositional approach, or we use apologetics in general against people who don't believe in the Christian worldview. So your question is basically asking, how do we do apologetics to people who don't believe the Christian worldview? Right. And, and uh, again, so uh, an atheist is not going to believe the Christian worldview, but um, that doesn't mean that because the Christian has his worldview over here and the atheist has his worldview over here and that he's only going to interpret the evidence we give him in light of his system. OK, that doesn't mean that it's impossible to talk to the person. Right. This is where the internal critique is going to happen. OK, we know he is denying it with his mouth. OK, the Christian God. But if we're going to function in a way that is consistent with the Christian worldview, the Bible actually gives you a heads up as to the nature of the unbeliever. Okay. The Bible says that all men know that God exists such that they are without excuse. And so uh, while the unbeliever professes with their mouth unbelief in God, disbelief in God, we want to draw out the reliance upon God, even in their denial. And that's where the internal critique is. Not only does your system not provide the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience, knowledge, science, and anything like that. But all the while in your denial, you have to assume or presuppose God, even while denying Him. And of course, you're going to have to work that out within the apologetic context. But of course, we're doing apologetics with people who are professing a denial of our position. Okay, and so you're going to have to be able to navigate that. Now, what does that look like? Um, look at Scripture. Look at Scripture. Look how look how the apostles engaged people that didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, read apologetic books, of presuppositional books, where you can they show you how to kind of use this method. To, from, uh, to the different perspectives. In the book that I will be writing, uh, one of the answers will be how do you use presuppositional apologetics against competing religions? How do you use presuppositional apologetics against an atheist? We'll cover that um, as well. But for now, um, what I've laid out so far is kind of how you do it, right? The unbeliever is not going to believe your position. You're going to have to draw out the knowledge of God that he has from his position by engaging in inter- internal critique and showing that he actually has to rely on the, the facts of your worldview even to deny them. OK, now, again, that sounds very simple the way I said it. There's a lot more to it. But just to keep it short, that's that's kind of the approach that we would have to use. OK. All right. Good question. Uh, let's see here. OK. Do you agree? With... OK. All right. Uh, Aaron says, uh, do I agree with James White? Uh, what James White said about presupp being um, evidential? Well, what I know about Dr. White is that he is a presuppositionalist okay and he's defended presuppositionalism and he's done so evidentially okay and what i mean by that is not that he's dipped in and out of the presuppositional methodology into an evidential methodology but i think dr white has beautifully done in his debates is that he's been able to argue as a consistent presuppositionalist while also highlighting the specific evidences and challenging the presuppositional framework with which the unbeliever approaches those evidences okay so in a sense if i'm understanding you correctly I would agree that presupp is evidential if by evidential we mean that we use evidences in a way that is consistent with a presuppositional framework, okay? So if that's what he means, I agree with him. I don't think he means evidential in, in the sense of presuppositionalism and evidentialism being put together, right? I think what he means is presuppositionalism and a presuppositionalist application of evidences, right? If that's what he means, I would agree with that. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay. Um, whoops. Uh view jazz would be cool if you had a section on logic, for example, where scripture uses modus ponens law of excluded middle, also traditional versus modern logic. See, you see, that's the kind of stuff that I need to hear. You see, so you email me something like that and we can go through that. As a matter of fact, there are good examples of the different forms of logic being utilized uh, different, uh, you know, Logical structures here used within scripture within the work of Gordon Clark. And I think he highlights some of those things as well. So that's a really good um uh, portion to include in in something like the precept answer book. So uh thank you for that. Yeah, definitely a topic that I'd like to uh to cover here. All right, let's see here. Moving along, moving along. Mm-hmm. I don't respond to the forum. Let's see. Na-na-na-na. A lot of stuff. Hopefully last time is there's Sorry, now I I mumble, you see. Uh, I would be terrible on radio, right? Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Melissa asks, can you recommend some good resources in regards to Black Hebrew Israelites? Yes and no. No, I can't recommend good resources in the sense that I have not studied that specific issue in any depth. Yes, in the sense that I know that Vocab Malone who is also an apologist and has his YouTube channel. I think it's called street apologist. I've actually appeared on his show before to talk about presup. Um, he is a solid reformed guy, but he also has a great focus upon reaching out to, uh, the black Hebrew Israelites. I think he wrote a book. Let me see if I can search for that book right here. Okay. In my mega information desk, AKA my iPad, Kindle library. Uh, Okay. Here we are. Let's see if I can find the name of that book for you. Um, that is directed to that specific topic here. So let's see if I can get that here. Yes, here we go. Uh, so vocab alone wrote a book, Barack Obama verse the black Hebrew Israelites introduction to the history and beliefs of the First West Hebrew Israelism, okay? So you want to definitely check out Vocab Malone, the Vocab Malone, Vocab, V-O-C-A-B, Malone, M-A-L-O-N-E. Check out his YouTube channel. He actually has recorded interactions with black Hebrew Israelites. So his channel will be a a priceless help in that regard. And of course, his book, you can pick up on Amazon. I feel like I'm a commercial. You can pick up his book on Amazon and bookstores everywhere, (laughs) all right? So you might want to check that out. Okay, Uh, very good. All right. So uh, David asks, how long have you been studying presup, and how has it influenced your walk with the Lord? You see, now this is another great question. I think this, this is a really good question. Um, how long? To be perfectly honest, I haven't counted, right? There wasn't this time where, okay, now I'm counting. I'm going to study precept. Boom. Starting now. And then a timer goes off so that I have no idea how long. All I know is the, the way that I studied is I listened to a lot of audio, Okay going down to Virginia with my live in New York, going down to Virginia with my wife, we kind of had a rule when going on road trips that whoever drives controls the audio. Okay. And of course, when we go on road trips, our van, yes, our van, I don't drive a cool car. I drive a white family van. Actually, it's pretty awesome. Uh, But um, our van becomes a seminary on wheels. Okay. My poor kids, you know, they used to have to listen every now and then to what I had on, but now they have their tablets. They got their headphones on. My wife is listening to something and the van is all mine. And for a long time, I listened to audios of Greg Bonson, countless debates, you know, teachings like from James White, Scott Oliphant, John Frame. And I absorbed the content. And of course, that made me aware of books that i that i bought and uh, devoured i wanted to learn the methodology um and so i have been studying it a long time now the second part of your question i think is very important and a lot of people don't ask this question because apologetics is often seen as kind of the the intellectual exercise and it's we we tip a hat so to speak to the spiritual formation side right doing apologetics also strengthens your walk with the lord but we don't really spend too much time on that because That's not really the fun stuff. Let's talk about apologetics. And unfortunately, um, that is a problem. You see, this is why I think our apologetic methodology should be so tethered to scripture. Because if our apologetic method is not engaged with scripture and operating on a world, on a biblical perspective, then we could drown in the intellectual studies of philosophy, of science and history and all these different things that we can actually starve ourselves of the spiritual health that comes from a steady diet of scripture. And so these things need to be married together so as to not create an imbalance in our studies where we find often that many apologists, young apologists are reading more books about apologetics than they are about the uh, than they are the Bible. They are reading more books about how to defend the Bible than actually reading the Bible themselves. And this is a great danger. This is a great danger. And so we want to be very careful to keep that Balance Now, presuppositional apologetics, because I think it is a biblical approach, the books that I've read include lots of scripture. And so not only am I learning how to defend my faith, I'm also reading scripture. And that has strengthened my perspective. In other words, instead of saying, how do I become a better apologist, I need to learn some philosophical concept, reading a lot of the presuppositional literature. And of course, there's some more philosophical that don't focus a lot on the text of scripture. But the books that I've read have always drawn me back to if I want to be a good apologist, I need to know my system. And where is my system found? Well, it's it's the very word of God. So it has encouraged my walk. Um, it has encouraged my walk with the Lord in that regard. Okay, excellent question. All right, so let's see. theology allows you to survive. There we go. There we go. Jess has got it. She's got it. Knowing your own theology allows you to <laughs> That's That's good. That's right. Knowing your own theology allows you to survive the internal critique of others. Yes, that is why we know our theology, right? Because we want the unbeliever to internal critique because we are welcoming it, right? Uh, we we want to internally critique their perspective. We want him to jump into our perspectives to see how well it works out. We, we welcome that, right? But if you don't know your own theology and the critiques are coming, you don't know whether a critique is a valid internal critique or the unbeliever has snuck in an external critique. Like my, my my interaction with Eric Murphy, when he was trying to internally critique by showing the, the contradictions within the Trinity, if I didn't know what the doctrine of the Trinity was, then I would have been stymied with his objection, but not knowing his objection was actually not an internal critique, but an external one, you see? So very, very important. Thank you so much for highlighting that. I think I said that a, a few, uh, well, we've been going for an hour and 14 minutes. I probably said it a long time ago, but- at any rate. Okay. Let's see here. Uh, there we go here. um, Uh, good answer. I ask because some people accuse that precept cannot engage in deep theological conversations because we just talk about the laws of logic, morality, and uniformity. Wait a second time out. Good answer. I ask because some people accuse that precept cannot engage in deep philosophical conversations. We just talk about those shallow things like the laws of logic, morality, and uniformity. Those are deep philosophical conversations. The laws of logic are immensely deep. They're some of the most difficult conversations that we could have, all right. Especially when you're dealing with different forms of logic and things like that, it gets very complicated. Okay, talking about universals and particulars—that's a very. Yeah, that, that this this comment is funny because the things that you list that are kind of the things we're accused of. Well, you guys just talk about that, not the deep stuff. Those are deep stuff. Okay, but if my answer helped you and kind of gave you better perspective, then awesome. I just wanted to point that out. Okay. Um, Jess, again, on fire, picking up those comments here uh, that I said before presuppositionalism is a powerful method, but must be used with gentleness and respect. That's right. That's right. Remember what I said before, you can do apologetics unbiblically, right? Don't be so caught up with the always be ready to give a reason, but then forget the gentleness and respect that needs to be tethered together. Because even if you speak the truth to someone, if you speak the truth like a jerk, then it's, you know, you're not going to be an effective communicator and hence you're going to break lines of communication. And it really defeats the whole purpose, right? We want to speak with people. We want to engage people and want to kind of, you know, um, speak to them uh, where they are. Okay. Very important. All right let's see here. I'm going to have to skip. Okay. Yes. deeply rooted. Okay. We are almost done. Okay. I told you I had coffee earlier, but the caffeine is still going. So I'm still awake. Um, all right. So how do you use precept apologetics against a Roman Catholic? Yeah. Uh, it's the same thing. Okay. Uh, the Roman Catholic, the thing about the Roman Catholic is that because they accept the scriptures, um, there is a common ground between you and the Roman Catholic. Now notice what I said. There is a common ground. That is not to say that there is neutral ground, right? There is no neutrality. All right. Bonson, Greg Bonson often spoke of the myth of neutrality. However, there is common ground in the sense that you both affirm scripture. And yes, the Roman Catholics affirm, uh, you know, the Apocrypha. And of course that might have to come into the issue, but I would say that a good way of presuppositionally addressing the Roman Catholic is internally critiquing their own perspective and also appealing to scripture. And so on an exegetical basis, you can demonstrate various tenets of Roman Catholic tradition being in conflict with the teaching of scripture. Okay. This is what I appreciate about Dr. James White. Dr. James White has debated for years, decades, um, Roman Catholic apologist. And what does he do? Is he talking about, well, by what standard is he saying, unless you believe Protestant Christianity, you can't know anything. No, he is appealing to scripture and history and various resources to show that given their own assumptions, they, you know, their position doesn't work out. So you still are using the same method, uh, but it's going to look a little different depending on who you're speaking with. Okay. Uh, Again, you might be seeing a dying battery. Uh, (laughs) I bought a charger. It plugs into the wall. It's not working. I don't know what's going on. So if my camera dies, it's going to switch to my regular laptop cam. I'm sure you don't mind as I finish up these last questions here. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Let's see here. (laughs) Um, Mike Burnett says, just heard your interview with my friend, Cindy Martin Morgan. Great info about her book. Yes, I agree. Um, If you guys are interested in Dr. Walter Martin, who is the original Bible Answer Man, uh, just the last episode before uh, here, I um, interviewed uh, Dr. Walter Martin's daughter and she wrote a book called The Bible Answer Man, where she talks about, um, you know, her father, really great behind-the-scene kind of stories, which was awesome. I couldn't put the book down. And, of course, she speaks a little bit about um, Hank Hanegraaff and his conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy and the relationship between Hank and her father. Um, it was an excellent book, and I highly recommend it. You can purchase it on Amazon, and I and I hope you guys do. Excellent, excellent book. All right. So let's see here. The last question. The last question is – this is the last question. Okay. We went lo- – to be perfectly honest, I thought we were only going to go – like a half hour, but I'm so happy that you guys had questions. Greatly appreciate it. Okay, um, um, how do you deal with the Christianity objection? Okay, how do you deal with the Christianity objection? Again, I apologize. In the middle of my answer, if my camera goes off, it's going to switch, and I'm not going to look as nice and uh, clear and HD-ish uh, as I do now. So I do apologize. Uh, but all you need is the audio. That's fine. Okay, we're a little ghetto here. It's it's all good. All right. Well, uh, people who don't know anything about presuppositional apologetics and things like that, the transcendental argument, they're going to say Christianity, what the heck? Well, the Christian worldview, we would argue as presuppositionalists, provide the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience, knowledge, science, whatever, fill in the blank, Christian worldview provides the necessary preconditions for that. And the the worldview of Christianity provides, in answer to the very profound philosophical problem, excuse me, known as the one and the many. Okay, and of course, how do we how do we answer that philosophical problem without going into the details? I assume the questioner knows a little bit about that. We show that God in his very being, his very nature is both one and many being a triune God. Right. Remember the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe that there is one God. Right. Uh, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Here, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one. Trinitarian Christians are monotheistic. Yet there are three persons called God. The Father is called God, the Son is called God, and the Holy Spirit is called God. So, in the person and nature of God, we have, um, with equal ultimacy, the oneness and multiplicity of God, okay? And so, unity and diversity are held equally within the nature of God, okay? Now, okay, Christianity is a hypothetical worldview that is the same as Christianity, complete with a one and many deity – And it is posited as a hypothetical option to combat the assertion that the Christian worldview is the only perspective that can ground these foundational issues, okay? Now, the problem with that is, is that when we posit a Christianity worldview that is the same as Christianity in every way, except, for example, instead of God being a trinity, he's a quadrinity, okay? He's one being who exists as four persons. The problem is, does the person who is putting forth this hypothetical believe that that worldview provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. See, unless he believes it, then how can he argue from his own unbelieving foundation that can't ground the rationality of his own question, but he does not believe this hypothetical possibility that may ground everything And he's not affirming Christianity. The question must be asked from a completely worldview, independent perspective. Unless this person thinks his own worldview provides the preconditions, he's going to have to admit, well, maybe my worldview doesn't, but maybe this worldview does. Okay. Do you hold to that worldview? Well, no. So then how do you even have the foundation to ground the very rationality and cogency of the question you're asking? You see? Well, then the person's like, well, then I do hold to uh, Christianity, but then we know Christianity is not true because you literally just made it up. You see? So if you're going to give a hypothetical, that's a necessary precondition. You either hold to it or you reject it and admit that the, the, the worldview out of which your question emerges does not ground it. Okay. So there are different ways that you can, that you can go about it. Now, the Christianity objection has been dealt with in, in an article by Michael Butler, who goes into great detail with regards to um, the transcendental argument and various objections against it. Again, I do want to deal with the Christianity objection in the book, um, the pre answer book, and um, I will hopefully will be able to address that in a short, succinct fashion in a way that's helpful for someone who may need an answer to that objection very quickly. Again, I'm not looking to write this huge, massive tome, but I want a question, a couple of paragraphs that captures the essence, the gem that captures how we answer these questions from a presuppositional perspective perspective okay and yes slamming is correct with regards to the first janity objection he says yeah that reminds me of the flying spaghetti monster objection that's exactly right well maybe the flying spaghetti monster uh, provides the preconditions of intelligible experience doesn't work and perhaps i will include that in uh my upcoming book all right well guys we've gone one hour and 23 minutes okay I would like to thank everyone who has given me encouragement to write this book. I definitely want to make sure that um, I'm held accountable by my wonderful YouTube community. um, And hopefully I can get this out as soon as I'm, uh, as I'm able to, um, and you guys can uh, purchase it and um, benefit greatly from it. And I am very appreciative of your questions, guys, keep your feet firmly granted in scripture and let everything you do reflect the truth upon which you stand. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your questions. Take care and God bless. That's it for this episode. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.